Hi. One of the features here on Less the Book Coach is going to be a weekly podcast. Everybody has a story. I spent 17 years in radio asking questions, and until I started this series, I had no idea how much I missed it. The format of these podcasts is going to be a guest and me in a conversation, and you get to eavesdrop. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed the conversation. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to today's podcast. My guest today is Terry Bronstein. Terry, um, in my mind, best known for being the youngest rink to win the Manitoba Curling Championship. Uh, But let's start out with what's the highlight of Terry Bronstein's curling career for you? Well, I, I... It's hard to compare. Um, it's really it's really difficult to compare. Less uh, uh, going to our first briar in 1958, which is now 62 years ago. Uh, as kids, as the youngest team ever to go to the briar, is uh, one of the two top highlights in the, my sporting life. Uh, the other one, and I and I don't think it was any more a uh, greater impact on us. We won the Canadian Championship in 1965, seven years later. So those are those are the two major highlights for sure of uh, of my curling career. Terry, when we talked earlier, you indicated that uh, you were on a bit of a campaign uh, about one of the members in that 1958 team. Bring us up to speed on on what's your concern, what's your intent about a member of that team. Well, that's actually that, that's a very good question. I appreciate that. Um, uh, the three other people that I played with uh, in both championships—sorry, uh, the, the three other people—I uh, played in both championships in 1958. It was Jack Van Hallamon, Ray Turnbull, my brother Ron, and myself. In 1965, which was seven years later, uh, Don Duguid replaced Jack Van Hallamon on our team, and the reason that Jack probably wasn't with us anymore as he had real bad leg problems and therefore couldn't curl very much anymore. But my biggest issue is that Donnie Dugood, Ray Turnbull, my brother and I are all in the Hall of Fame. And I found out by accident this year that Jack Hellemon, Jack von Hellemon, Van Hellemon is not in the Hall of Fame. And I really regretted that because he has this distinction of being the youngest curler ever to play in the Canadian Briar Championship. Um, in 1958, he was 16 years old, and he's by far the youngest player. Well, not by far, because uh, my brother was 17, but he's the youngest player to ever play in the Briar, and likely will be for a lifetime, because uh, after we played in that Briar in 1958, uh, they changed the ruling uh, about high school players not being able to play in the Briars. So um, my biggest concern is that I'd like to see Jack's name enshrined in probably the Manitoba Curling Hall of Fame and the Canadian Curling Hall of Fame and so far he isn't in either. I found it an interesting story how uh, Jack came to be on on your team in 1958 and you know we think of curling now where teams are forming to to make a run for the olympics so they look at at four-year plans where they're getting together and 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 forming a team uh yours was a little more uh immediate 
<laughs> Tell us how he got on that team. Well, you're right. We didn't plan as far ahead as they do today. Uh, what happened is that we had a we had a, an entry in for the Manit MCA bond spiel, which is the largest bond spiel in the world. It always has been. And, and um, if you qualify through that bond spiel, you got into the provincial playdowns. Uh, two days before the entries had to be finalized in the bond spiel, my lead, whose name our lead, whose name was Brian Longley at the time, and had played with us for a couple of years, found out from his employer that they wouldn't allow him to take the week off to play in the MCA spiel. So we had two days to try and find somebody. And we really didn't have much of an idea what to do. And my brother and I, we were living at home at the time, we were just kids, um, talked about different people. And we remembered this guy that we played against. Uh, this Now, this is, uh, is December, I'm talking about, when we had to have the entry ready, or early January. And we played in the high school playdowns about a month and a half previous um, against a team from Daniel McIntyre High School in a city playdowns. And we remembered his name. We remembered his name, but I couldn't find it in the phone book, so I didn't know what to do to try and find him. Um, and anyway, I realized that he played. I remember that he told me that he curled in the Belgian League at the Heather Curling Club, and he curled on Monday nights, and I had to have the entry in by Tuesday night. So I went to the Belgian Curling Club, and sure enough, he was there playing with his dad and another family member amongst a number of other very good curlers. The Van Wellinghams were there. The DeBlons were there. And anyway, I called him off the ice and told him what I wanted to do. And I said, but we only have one day to do it. So, so he uh, he thought that was a great idea. He liked it, but he, he was only 16. Actually, he was only 15 at that time. And so he had to ask his parents if it was okay. And they gave their approval. But that depended on the high school principal, who also gave me approval. And that's how Jack ended up on our team. And, and that team went on, believe it or not to win the Manitoba Championship, and we went all the way to a special playoff in the Canadian Championship, which we lost to Matt Baldwin. Now, uh, the MCA bonds bill has grown to tremendous numbers, and in 1988, it was the largest bonds bill ever. And that, I don't imagine that it was quite as big then, but you you had a good run through the bonds bill. And at that time, uh, my understanding is that the provincial championships were single knockout. So you had an incredible run with this team that you put together after a visit to the Belgium Curling League. That's correct, yeah. Well, that's exactly what happened. We did qualify through the Manitoba Bonspiel. At that time, there were 64 teams in the provincial playdowns less. 32 from the Bonspiel. They qualified 16 uh, each through two of the major events. And there were 32 separate zones. So there was a 64 in team playoff. And you're absolutely right. It was a straight knockout. One loss and you were out. Now, you you made mention that that was the way that you found him. You had uh, you, you knew that he curled at the Belgian Curling League. At that time, curling was much more of a social sport. And there were... Uh, there were certain clubs that might have had one, I don't know, for lack of a better word, ethnic group or, or whatever. You had a social aspect there, like in the Heather was had that Belgian league. You curled out of the granite, which was uh, a, a bit of an issue where it wasn't typical at that time, was it? Well, that's true. Uh, there were, I didn't realize at the time, nor did 
anybody on our team. Uh, my brother and I grew up in a small town in Binscarth, Manitoba, and uh, we'd only come into the city the year before. And um, actually, uh, we ended up curling at the Granite Club because, uh, and I have to give this guy credit because I haven't done it very much in the past, but there was a, a gentleman by the name of Lloyd Borland who was a teacher at Kelvin High School, and he ran the Kelvin High School Curling League, and he was there every week. We played once a week, and he was an avid member at the Granite Curling Club, and um, frequently he used to invite the guys who looked like pretty promising curlers to play with them at the Granite. He only ever had a three-man team, I think, and he, and he would invite various of us to come and play with them at the Granite, which we love. The, and one of the names that comes to mind that uh, took advantage of that opportunity was Gordy Lowry, who became a very great player over the years. And so, uh, and after we, I played with Lloyd a few times, and, and my brother had played with him as well, he suggested that we join the Granite Junior Club while we are curling at Kelvin. In fact, he was the one or he was one of the people that ran the Granite Judy Curling Club, and so that's how we became members of the Granite Club. In the meantime, during that period of time, uh, my brother and I were also curling with my uncle, Eve Portigal, who played out of the Maple Leaf Curling Club, and he'd been a very distinguished curler in Manitoba. He had twice gone to the provincial semifinals uh, on the, on the uh, McDonald Briar playdowns, once with a team from the Thistle, and in later years from the Maple Leaf. And uh, so we were curling with, with him on a regular basis at the Maple Leaf at that time. Now, uh, you've told me this story, and, and in the, I've heard it from, from, other, um, from other sources as well, but there was a bit of an issue with, uh, with Jewish people curling at the granite. Did that, did that surface, I mean, typically... You were playing at the Maple Leaf, which, as you mentioned, you did. But did that become yeah. an issue with going to the Briar or representing the, the, the club at that time? Well, uh, that's really interesting. You know, uh, my brother and I were totally oblivious to that sort of thing because uh, we'd never really uh, experienced any sort of anti-Semitism. And so, we no, it, it wasn't an issue at that time. I, I didn't find out about it. Uh, but we won the we won the provincial ch- provincial championship and um, uh, out of the Granite Curling Club, actually the Granite Juniors. Which, uh, uh, when we actually won the province, they, they, the officials, the curling officials, had to take a look and see because they weren't even sure that members of a junior club were eligible to play in the provincial playdowns. Uh, but eventually, uh, I guess the Granite. Uh, leadership convinced them that we we deserved to play in it, and so they allowed us to play in it. But the interesting story came up the next year uh, when, after having won the provincial championship, we wanted to uh, join, and we put in an application to join the men's the men's club at the Granite. Um, and we put the entry, you know the application in early, and uh, I kept checking every once in a while. They didn't have any openings. Didn't have any openings. So just in case we couldn't get in. Um, uh, we put in an application of Maple Leaf and were accepted immediately, but we decided we'd, we'd wait and see. Anyway, we waited and waited and waited, and then the day before the Granite season opened, we got accepted into the Granite Curling Club in the fourth division, even though we just won the provincial championship. But that was fine. We were okay with that. And I didn't know until seven years later that the reason that we weren't it being accepted in the Granite Club as there was an issue about us being Jewish, and I guess some of the prominent members of the club uh, didn't want us in as members. 
Now, my brother and I never, ever uh, faced anything like that. We weren't aware of that. Although, in retrospect, I know of a couple of members that probably felt that way just by their behavior, but never paid much attention to it. And I found out from a very good authority that what happened was that the Granite was not going to allow us in. And Gordy McTavish, who was the president of the Granite Curling Club and a member of the Manitoba uh, Curling Association board, told the board of the Granite that if they didn't allow us in, he was going to go public and let and let the sports world know what was happening at the Granite. And that's how I found it. I had no idea that it was really even existed until I found that out. And and, and I'm sure it was probably true because Gordy was a very sincere, honest, uh, forthgoing sort of person. Terry, you alluded to uh, to one of the changes that came about because of your young team and, and then the rules came into place uh, because of, of your team being the youngest ever to the Briar. <clears throat> but there were some other changes that came about. I believe that at the time that you were playing with that team uh if you came out of the hack and and it didn't feel right you could as long as you hadn't let go of the rock you could take it back and try again was that still the case or or did a rule come come about because you did that a number of times didn't you you've done your homework very well Les. (laughs) well that's absolutely true uh there was no rule in curling at that time and uh, and some people used to do it all. I think I was more. I did it more frequently. Um, balance, you know, balance is always a great issue in a, in a curling delivery. And I used to find that uh, every once in a while, if I came out of the hack off balance, instead of throwing the rock, I would stop and hold on to it before the hog line, and then go back to the hack. And there was no rule at all about that. So. Uh, there were two Bronstein rules that came out of that 1958 prior. <laughs> At least that's what they called them. <laughs> I don't like them to be remembered that way. But the one was they disallowed uh, anybody in high school from playing in the Briar, which I think because, and and their um, their explanation for that was they felt that we shouldn't be at a high school. We, you know, it'd be more important to be in high school than going to the Briar, which is totally erroneous. I mean, we, the four of us, went to the Briar, you know, between the ages of 16 and 18. It was probably the greatest experience in our life. And had they had that rule in place at the time, we wouldn't have had the chance for that experience. So it was a ridiculous rule. They also, uh, they also changed that uh, practice, slide, practice sliding rule. And the next year, the other rule came in is that if you cross the T-line with the rock in your hand, it was... Uh, it was a completed shot, and you couldn't you couldn't go back to the hack. In fact, strangely enough, and I don't you may even know this because you're you're a very good historian. But about about a year later, in the Charleswood Carbon Steel, uh, in the very final end with the last rock, in the most critical of all, somebody supposedly crossed the T line with the rock. And there was a huge controversy before the ending, uh, and the shot would have been to win four cars. So it was a pretty major thing, and that rule, that rule came up uh, at that time. And I think it was about a year and a half later after uh, after Curling put that rule in. 
Terry, it's, it's been a while since you, you won those provincial championships and the game has changed a lot. Uh, we've talked about the that now uh, teams get formed for, to try to make an Olympic run at it. But if you look at the way that the game has changed, is there anything that, that you regret, that you, that you wish hadn't happened in the game? Um... Yeah, I, it's interesting. I mean, it's so advanced, and players today are so great, and the conditions are so great um, that uh, it, it's come an incredibly long way. Uh, and and the players of today are wonderful, wonderful players. But the ice conditions are amazingly good as well. I think there are two things that I wished hadn't happened. Well, there are three things I wished hadn't happened. I guess number one. I like the corn brooms better than I like the uh, than I than I like the push brooms today, because um, that really required strength and athletic ability to handle the corn brooms. I don't think the push brooms require the same sort of athletic ability, although they they do. There's no question that they do, and they make a huge difference. That's one thing I regret. I miss the corn brooms. Um, the other the other thing I miss I don't like is that they have referees in the hog line. Um, in in our day, uh, we never uh, we never ever had uh, any referees. It was a gentleman's game, and if you broke a rule, it was up to the offending team to call themselves on it. And invariably, people did. We hardly ever ever had a problem. And I regretted the year that the referees came into it, but I guess because there's so much on the line these days, it's somewhat understandable. Um, so those are those are two of the major major things I think um, that I I regret that they've changed the game in that respect. What about that high school championship? You've you said that I mean that's how you got to meet Jack Van Hellem and uh, you know through through high school curling. We've gone from that high school curling to a World Junior Championship, which is a great event, but it's it's reduced the number of, of kids playing the game, hasn't it? You, uh, you've just hit on my greatest regret in the game of curling. Um, when, when I was young and in, in the 50s and the 60s, uh, that's when I was curling, and all the high schools in Manitoba, all the schools in Manitoba, not just high schools, but all the, all the rural schools had curling. And, and, and I moved into Winnipeg when I was 16, and all the Winnipeg high schools had curling leagues. They played at the local clubs. And so uh, there were a lot, a lot, and particularly after we won in 1958, the number of people in the Manitoba high schools that were curling jumped tremendously because everybody, everybody started to realize that young people had a chance to be, be good at the sport prior to our being and having that success in Manitoba in 58 and in the Briar. It was really an old person's game, and the briar that we went to that year was a mostly older curlers. Like in the well, at that time we were in our teens, so it was the people in their forties, the late thirties and forties, and even one guy in the briar that year was sixty-nine years old. So I really regret that curling was taken out of the high school when the the uh, world curling junior curling championships were started, and the age then was twenty-one. So it really took the high schoolers out of the, the mix for championships like that. 
And ultimately, as a result of that, it's my, my feeling that curling in the high schools gradually died a slow death. And as a result, and this is my opinion only, but as a result, we have far, far few curlers in Manitoba than we did years ago. And I really regret that because there are a lot of people that don't have the opportunity to play just an absolutely terrific sport where camaraderie rather than winning is really the main objective. Terry, is there room for both? Uh, we've talked about the evolution to to it being on the world stage and the Olympics and, and very competitive teams. But at the beginning of this interview, we talked about the, the social leagues and, and, you know, you mentioned the, the Belgium Curling League and, and those kind of things that were social. Um, and, yeah. and much more of the team or teams were much more uh, curling with your friends than, than now. It's about putting together a competitive team. Is there room for both in the game? Well, I, I would hope there there is. I mean, there still is a lot. Most people are social curlers, and don't get it wrong. Um, oh, the Belgian league was a social league. It was incredibly competitive. I mean, there were several several people of the Belgian nationality that were excellent curlers, and uh, they had Manitoba champions among them. So it was a very competitive league, and the Maple Leaf was curling league the jewish curling club was also very competitive not at the same quality as the, as the belgian league and so several clubs were like that but uh my greatest regret right now is that um although these national leagues uh, these national curling these national curling championships um are are good for the sport and good for the televised televised part of the sport and draw huge viewing audiences it's really reduced the competitiveness in curling to approximately a double dozen rinks in both the men's and women's uh, leagues. If you take a close look at the Briar and the Scotties, about two-thirds, at least two-thirds of the teams uh, play in the national circuit, the Grand Slam of curling. Very few people can afford to play in the Grand Slam of curling because it's extremely difficult to make enough money to get by on playing in those leagues and in fact i would guess although i don't know for a fact that half of the teams that are playing in those leagues don't make a decent living from it but the top ones do and so it's basically broken into curling into the very elite top 10 or 12 teams in the grand slam of curling and the rest of the world and if you take a look and not many people do this but if you take a look at the semifinals uh, of the last several briars and scotties all those teams, almost invariably, all of those teams play on the Grand Slam. So they've eliminated a great part of the competitive part of curling. The social part still goes on. All the clubs still have their social curls and stuff like that. But my my biggest concern is that the lack of competition uh, be up below that level is really lacking. Although they have started in recent years to have a second level and hopefully, and younger players are playing in it. So hopefully they'll get to that level if they can ever afford to be on that national on that national circuit. Terry, if you've got a comment uh, about the game, how was how was curling treated you when you look back at it? And we just passed a birthday here. Here, you're. Let's say you're becoming a senior now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, what has curling meant for you, and what's the best part of the game that, 
that it gave Terry Bronstein. Well, you're right. You're right. I'm um, I'm now 80. I just turned 81 years old uh, last week, less, and uh, and I played all the sports. I played I played football. I played baseball. I played basketball. I played squash. I played tennis. I played a ton of sports. None none at the level. Uh, well, I was in track and field as well. Uh, uh, so uh, at the level, my level obviously of curling was better than any of the other sports. But the thing about curling that I loved is it's, and not many people can understand it, but if you play it competitively, it's a wonderful team game, a really wonderful team game. And the best part about curling is that everybody played there from all walks of life. Uh, didn't matter whether you were the uh, premier of the province, a couple of whom also curl quite a bit, or um, a truck driver, as an example, because Winston Warren, who played with me for four or five years and was a great player, a great guy, he was a truck driver. Nobody really in the curling world really cared what you did for a living. It's just the kind of person you were. And uh, even in our most competitive days, and this is, I think, the best part about curling, in the most competitive days, we'd finish the game, say, in a provincial semifinal, and heck of a, have a heck of a battle, and then the two teams would go upstairs and sit together after the game and have a few drinks and talk about it, like we were friends as well, but great competitors. Um, that's why I think curling is an incredible game, and it's unfortunate there are not enough people that kind of realize and get those kind of benefits out of it, but uh, curling has done an amazing amount for me. I've met people. As a result of the curling, I've met people from all over the world, and then even more through Ray Turnbull, who was my best friend and curled with me for years competitively. He ended up um, doing curling schools all over the world, and I got to meet even more people as a result of that, of helping him with some of the curling schools. So that's my thoughts. I loved all the sports, but and without question of a doubt, for me, curling was the very best of them all. Terry, thanks for your time. Our guest today has been Terry Bronstein on Everybody's Got a Story. That's today's podcast, Everybody Has a Story. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed asking the questions. And if you have any ideas for an interesting guest, you'd like to hear more on any topic, please send the idea along to lessthebookcoach at gmail.com.